All right. <laughs> what, one of the best specials we've ever done, you think? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll say this not to embarrass you. But the first service spontaneously got up, and we're keeping the rhythm, man. They, they, I mean, the whole congregation was clapping. Just to let you know. <laughs> I know you're kind of like me. You appreciate it inwardly. You just don't show it outwardly. <laughs> well, we're in a series called Erase and Rewind. And uh, each week I've said it's about this rem remarkable capacity that God has given us as human beings to change the way we think, and in that process, change our entire lives. And so each week I've tried to let this part uh, sink deeply in, that as you come here today, there is absolutely the potential for any of us in this room to, to say, from this day forward, my life is going to be different. I'm going to change my mind. There's a verse that I've shared, or a word that I've shared each week. Uh, it's a Greek word that the New Testament was written in Greek. And it's used 58 times. The Greek word is metanoia. And it's usually translated repent or repentance. Now, we've added some religious notions to it, like mourning and crying about our sins and being sorrowful for our sins. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what the word meant. When Jesus used it, when the apostles used it, this is, in fact, what it meant, to change one's mind based on new insight. And the notion was that I get this new information, I get this new truth, maybe, about God and about life. And it, here we go. Did you hear it? This happened in the first service, too. Should I just give it up? No, don't give it up. Well, we, we have an alternative. You want, you want to go a little longer? See if I... Yeah, it, it's, I have this energy, man, and it gets into the microphone. <laughs> they can't keep it out. They try this with all other people. They can't get any static. As soon as it gets on me, it's like the energy just... It just oozes. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, God has given us this ability... To, uh, with new information, change our minds, and by that process, change our lives. Now, this message today I'm, I'm particularly kind of excited about because uh, some messages, to be honest with you, they require more of a patient process before you can see the impact and the results. Most things spiritual are like that. But frankly, this morning, there's some of us in here that could literally, literally change the emotional climate of our souls before we leave here today, based on the truth that God wants to present to us in this particular message. And the message is about expectations. So the question we want to ask is, do, could our expectations use in a race and a rewind? This guy named Eric Stagno, he's uh, 34 years old and he lives in Massachusetts. He, he's an exercise enthusiast. And so he joined Planet Fitness. Just curious, anybody here go to Planet Fitness? Uh, okay, back there. And, and do you know the slogan of Planet Fitness? You, you wouldn't say it if you knew it, would you? <laughs> In a public domain. Like anyway, uh, Eric Stagno went to Planet Fitness, and uh, he went into the gym, and then he proceeded to take off all of his clothes, all of his clothes, <laughs> and then find a good yoga mat and uh, start his exercise program. Makes you think about the next time you touch one of those mats in the gym. <laughs> Uh, the people were shocked. Uh, I've, I've been going to a gym, you know, for a lot of years, and I've never seen anything quite like that, thankfully. And they call the police, and the police come out. Well, well when the police ask Eric, uh, what are you doing? Why, why did you do this? There, there he is. He's a handsome fella, if you like Satan. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of what I envision Satan to look like. I, mean, I don't know. 
I don't know why. Probably doesn't. Satan probably looks more like me. Who knows? Uh, um, anyway, Planet Fitness has a slogan. Here's what the slogan is. This is a judgment-free zone. When the cops ask Eric, why the nakedness? He said, I thought this was a judgment-free zone. There you go. His expectations were just a little off of what most gyms and even Planet Fitness will go for. So we see that expectations can get you in some trouble. Now, I'm going to give you five statements about expectations, and this will sort of get us on a very fast track to dealing with this subject. Here we go. Expectations are our attempt to gain a sense of control over our lives by trying to anticipate the future. We can't see the future, but we try to anticipate it, and it gives us a false but some sense of control over our lives. Expectations do that. Expectations are primarily the result of our upbringing, our culture, as in, you know, the American dream. If you were born in Calcutta on the streets in India, you'd have a different dream, I'm sure. Uh, our experiences in life and our beliefs. Now, our beliefs, they may not be accurate beliefs, but nevertheless, they can shape our expectations. I may believe that everybody in this room hates me, and I may react to that emotionally. Or I may believe that everybody in this room loves me, and I'll react to that emotionally. So it's not if my belief is accurate. It's just what do I actually believe that creates my expectations. Let me go on. Expectations have a huge impact on our emotional condition. This is the important part of the message. Finally, or next to finally, expectations that are realistic bring emotional health and effective living. Realistic expectations bring emotional health and effective living. On the contrast to that, expectations that are not realistic bring emotional disease. I took the word disease there and just kind of, you know, stretched it out trying to make the point. It brings discomfort inside and real emotional illness uh, and ineffective living. And it all comes from unrealistic expectations. We all have expectations, every single one of us in the room. Made in God's image, we can't help but to have expectations. The only question is, are, are, our real, are our expectations realistic or unrealistic? Well, I want to take you to a portion of Scripture now uh, in the Old Testament. Go ahead and turn there. It'll be Psalm 34 that you'll be looking at. It'll be page 615 in those Bibles that are near you on the chair. And to give you some background to Psalm 34, and it's very specific. David wrote many of the Psalms, and King David wrote this one. David was the second and the greatest king of Israel. And uh, this Psalm came from an experience. You've got to get that, an experience in his own life. Uh, David's life was real simple when it started out. He was just a shepherd, but he was a shepherd that had this passionate love for God, and heaven took notice. And the next thing you know, God tells Samuel the prophet, I want you to go and anoint this guy to be the next king. I've rejected Saul. He was the first king of Israel. And Don't feel badly. This happened in the first service too. Uh, he decided he wanted David to replace him as king, so he sends Samuel the prophet to David, and he dumps this oil over his head, symbolizing that he is God's chosen in which the Spirit is going to reside on him to be the next king of Israel. So David's life goes from simplicity, just being this shepherd, this kind of a lone, loner shepherd guy, to being this star overnight. He 
comes to bring food supplies to his brothers when the uh, Israeli army and the Philistine army were having a standoff. Remember the big guy, Goliath? He was mocking the Israelites day after day. Send me somebody to fight. Nope. Nobody wanted to fight. They're, they're trying to adjust me back there is what it is. Um, Nobody wanted to fight him. And so David's there, and he says, hey, I'll fight this guy. When I was a shepherd, I killed a lion trying to take a hold of the sheep, and I killed a bear one time too. What, what's this Philistine to me? He's defying God. I'll fight him. And you know the story. David gets his rock and sling, and he kills him. And all of a sudden, he becomes a hero in Israel. With King Saul being a good politician, he said, hey, hey, I want you to be my right-hand man. Come on into my household. Come into my, my uh, court and so forth. Live there. And then he gives his daughter Michael to be David's wife. All this happens in one year. He goes from shepherd boy unknown to superstar in the nation of Israel. But then King Saul starts getting really suspicious and jealous of him and actually tries to kill him on two different occasions. And so David has to run for his life, has to leave his wife behind, and he lives as a fugitive for four or more years, every day wondering if he would live to see the next. When you come to this psalm, He's in a situation where he has become so desperate, he goes to the enemies of God's people, the Philistines. And he says, hey, look, can I just hide out amongst you guys? You know, King Saul's after me. He's trying to kill me. I don't, my own people are not supporting me. I'll just come and live with you guys. And initially, the Philistine king was okay with that, but then some of the Philistine commanders said, hey, hey don't let this guy in. He's, he's just spying you out. He'll turn on you. And so the Philistine king says, ah, well, let me think about this. And then he looks at David, and all of a sudden David is babbling to himself, and spittle, it says in Scripture, is dribbling down his chin. He's acting like he had a mental breakdown. He literally fakes a mental breakdown. Read it on your own in 1 Samuel 21 sometime. He fakes a mental breakdown to escape from the Philistines, and it's that background that this psalm comes from. David is writing from his own experiences with God, what he is trying to do, though, and this is so important, he's trying to set the expectations of those that would trust God and be his loyal followers. He's trying to say, hey, let me tell you how God has operated in my life, and you can expect the same thing. He's trying to encourage them. He's trying to equip them. He's trying to strengthen their trust in God. He's trying to bring joy where there might have been confusion and peace where there might have been turmoil. And so that's the background of Psalm 34. You'll see how this works when we get into it. So let's, let's go ahead and uh, go to Psalm 34. I'll start in verse 1. David says, I will praise the Lord. How often? At all times. Because God is worthy. He doesn't change. He's worthy of praise just because of who he is. I will praise the Lord at all times. My mouth will continually praise him. I will boast in the Lord. Let the oppressed... Hear and rejoice. Now, to be oppressed is not a, a good condition, not something we would want. Magnify the Lord with me. Let's praise his name together. Now he gets real personal. I sought the Lord's, what? Help. And he answered me. He delivered me from my, what? From all my fears. Those who look to him for help are happy. Their faces are not ashamed. This oppressed man, talking about himself, cried out, and the Lord heard him. And he saved him from all his troubles. So here's David saying, look, I had fears that were wrecking me. I, I felt overwhelmed by my circumstances. I was in trouble. I cried out to God. I was in real trouble. I had some serious troubles in my life. But I cried out, and God took away my fears, and he delivered me out of all my troubles. He's setting expectations. He's saying, loyal follower of God, you might get in trouble. You might be filled with fear. 
but your God is still with you, and you can expect him to bring you through or bring you out of it. So that's what he's doing in this passage. He just kind of keeps repeating this theme. theme. Look at verse 5. Oh, excuse me, verse uh, 7. It says, the Lord's angel camps around the Lord's, what kind of followers? Loyal followers and delivers them. Notice, you don't need deliverance unless you're in trouble. Taste and see the Lord is good. How blessed is the one who takes what in him? Shelter. I don't need shelter unless I'm vulnerable and maybe in danger. I need shelter, a hiding place. Remain loyal to the Lord, you chosen people of his. For his, what kind of followers again? Loyal followers lack nothing. He's saying, listen, you stay faithful to God, you will not have to worry about your needs. He will supply you. Let's pick up reading again in verse 15. It says, the Lord pays attention to the godly and hears their cry for what? You don't need help unless you're in trouble. But the Lord opposes evildoers and wipes out all memory of them from the earth. The godly cry out and the Lord hears them. He saves them from all their, what is the word? Troubles. You notice a repeated theme here about expectations. He delivers those who are, what condition? Or, I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. The Lord is near the who? Heartbroken. Should God's people expect to ever be heartbroken according to this? Yes. Goes on to say, uh, the Lord is near the heartbroken and he delivers those who are, what kind of condition? Discouraged. The godly face many dangers. That word for dangerous there in the Hebrew, it could be dangerous, trials, difficulties, troubles. The godly face many dangers, trials, troubles, but the Lord saves them from each one of them. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil people do what? They self-destruct. Evil is its own punishment. Those who hate the godly are punished. The Lord rescues his servants. He rescues. You don't need rescue unless you're in trouble. He rescues his servants all who take shelter in him escape punishment. So here we have David, and he's saying, listen, I know this stuff by experience. I, I've walked with God. I've been through difficulties. And when you read of David's life, it was riddled with difficulties, frankly, right up until the end. But what he is saying, I want to simplify this. He's saying, you know what you can expect if you're, if you're one that's trusted in God? You've been reconciled to him. You're now loyal to him because he's won your trust He's saying that you can expect your share of troubles and difficulties, but you can also expect for God to always be with you, to always strengthen you, to always help rescue you, to deliver you, to calm you. He's there. You're going to go through it, but he'll get you through it, and you are literally indestructible until your mission on this planet is done. And that doesn't mean you should live stupidly. But it is something to give us confidence, even when we're in trouble. So this was David's testimony. And he meant it, like I said, to help the people of God in all ages set their expectations. Came across something interesting. In 1996, they found some letters of Albert Einstein. And they found uh, one in particular that was a set of expectations that uh, Albert Einstein gave to his wife in their marriage. These, these are his actual written expectations that he wrote and gave to his wife. This is back in 1914, marital expectations. Here you go. Daily laundry kept in good order. He wrote this to his wife. Three meals regularly in my room. <laughs> A desk maintained neatly for my use only. 
Demand that she quit talking or leave the room if I request it. <laughs> now, why would you laugh at that? <laughs> yeah, I guess it's no surprise that they divorced, huh? <laughs> That's true. They did. Now, now, Tim Keller and his wife, Tim Keller is a pastor, a great Christian writer. Uh, he and his wife are picking up on this theme of marital expectations from 2014. Let's fast forward 104 years to present, and they write this. We are looking for someone who accepts us as we are and fulfills our desires, and this creates a what? An unrealistic set of expectations that frustrates both the searcher and the search for. It goes on. The Bible's view of marriage involves two flawed people become, or excuse me, coming together to create a space of stability, love, and consolation. Goes on. A marriage based not on self-denial but on self-fulfillment will require a low or no-maintenance partner who meets your needs while making almost no claims on you. Sounds like a great deal. Go on, next one. Simply put, today people are asking far too much in the marital partner or in the marriage partner. So this shows how our expectations can be off. They can be inaccurate. And when they're inaccurate, it always causes trouble. So I, I want to just take some time to examine the problems, the problems that come from unrealistic expectations. So listen to this verse from Psalm 10, also by David. He says, the wicked are too proud to turn to you, meaning the Lord, or even think about you. In their hearts, they say, nothing can hurt us. We'll always be happy and free from trouble. This is the expectation of some people. Maybe it's the unconscious, buried expectation, but some people really think, I'm going to make it all through life. I'm going to always be happy. I should always be happy. I should never have to be unhappy, and I'll be trouble-free. I shouldn't have to deal with trouble. That's the kind of life I, I'm going to have, or I expect to have. But that's not very realistic. Listen to what Job said in the book of Job. Job 3.25, it says, For the very thing I dreaded has happened to me, and what I feared has come upon me. Consequently, he says, I have no ease. I have no quietness. I cannot rest. Turmoil has come upon me. If our expectations are unrealistic and then they are not fulfilled, we end up like Job. No ease, no rest, no peace. Listen, if we expect things to go a certain way, the way we desire them to go, and they don't go that way, here's what usually happens to us inside, particularly if we, if we call ourselves a Christian, a Christ follower. We might reason like this. We might say, hey, listen, God has all power on heaven and earth. Uh, if he loves me the way he says that he loves me, why would he not see to it? Why would he not use his power to protect me and my loved ones always, to make things always go right for us, to always bless me, to always give me what I ask him for, to always make sure that I get justice and just treatment, to make sure that I never get sick, and if I ever get sick, that I get healed quickly, and on and on I could go. Because if he loves me and he has all power, why doesn't he do that? And then when it doesn't happen that way, the reaction tends to be like this. Well, I, I, I thought I could trust you, God. I, I, thought, I thought you were there for me. I thought I, I, thought I could trust you. You really love me. You, you're not there for me. You don't love me. Or, or, or maybe you're not there at all. Maybe, maybe I'm just a fool. Maybe I'm believing in nothing. And then what can happen also is the person whose expectations are not met is they get confused 
they get heartbroken, they get discouraged, they get angry, they get bitter, they get cynical, and they even get depressed sometimes. You see, we are impacted deeply, our emotions are impacted deeply by our expectations. It doesn't matter what our expectations are. They may be realistic or unrealistic, but if they are not fulfilled, if we, in other words, if we don't get what we expect, our emotions will show up. And I just want you to pause for a minute. I want you to ask yourself a question. Is there some area in your life, some relationship in your life, some area in your life that frankly, you're not happy with you're disappointed you're discouraged you're maybe almost close to depressed let me go further some of you are downright angry at your circumstance you're you're bitter truth be told you try not to say that because you know Christians are not supposed to be but you are you're bitter because you expected something from someone or something and you have not received it the way that you wanted it and this is what the results are because your expectations are not fulfilled, but you've never perhaps asked yourself, were my expectations, were they ever realistic? And if they're not, that's problematic. There was a program on NPR, National Public Radio, by a guy named Ira Glass, and it's called This American Life. And in this particular program, he had a room full of people, it was over 100 people, and he asked them a simple question. He said, you know, remember back when you started out your life as a you know, young person, and you had expectations, you had plans for your life. We'll, we'll call those expectations and those plans plan A, you know, or a set of expectations A. This is what I want for my life. This is how I picture my life going. This is what I think will happen as I grow into life. And then he asked 100 or over 100 people in the room, how many of you still have plan A set of plans and expectations for your life? You're living out that plan A. Out of 100 people, a little over 100 people in the room, how many hands went up saying that, yes, I'm still plan A? How many, just take a wild guess, how many out of 100 do you think still had plan A? One. You're right. One person. One person. Guess how old she was. 23, <laughs> 23, be interesting to talk to her at 25. <laughs> so if this is the case, it's indicative that it's not at all unusual for us to have some unrealistic expectations and then life gradually weans us of them, but not for everyone, not for everyone. You see, here's what happens. Some people... Some people don't let life wean them of their expectations or modify their expectations. No, they, they still cling to those expectations. They call them rights even. They insist on them. They get angry. They even fight and defend the right for them to have whatever it is from whoever they want it from or what they, whatever it is they want it from. And they won't let it go. They won't give it up. And consequently, they become discouraged and bitter unhappy, maybe depressed, all unnecessarily, all unnecessarily. It's just because they have unrealistic expectations and they won't let them go. They fight for them. They fight for their right to stay miserable and discontented. You know anybody like that? You ever met somebody like that? 
They've got a hundred reasons how they've been cheated, how their life hasn't been fair, how they've been mistreated, how they've been overlooked, how they've been forgotten. And they get bitter because their underlying expectation was everything should have went smoothly, nicely, just the way they desire. You know, you know what happens to us? I'm not trying to be mean-spirited at all. Here's what happens to us. We get confused. Deep, deep inside, buried and, and, and kind of muddy and foggy, but it's still existing, it's still alive. We sense, we know, we were made for a life that is staggeringly beautiful and perfect altogether. That's why no matter how much we get or experience, we might enjoy it for a while, but then we're going to want more because there is this desire for something eternally beautiful and perfect inside of us. We get that foggy feeling, that foggy sense confused that it's something that's supposed to be given to us in this life. This is the time that we're supposed to experience this kind of a perfect world and perfect relationship, and we cling to it. And when it doesn't happen, we get confused, and we lose our trust in God. We start getting angry at God. God, you could, have, you could have fixed this. You could have given me a better life. You could have given me a better career. You could have given me a better spouse. You could have given me better kids. You could have given me better health. You could have made me smarter. You could have made me more gifted and talented. And on and on and on it goes. So what do we do when we finally realize plan A expectations? They're not going to happen. But what we can do is this. We can exchange them for the power of realistic expectations. Once we gain realistic expectations of life, it actually gives us power. It actually builds our trust in God. It actually gives us courage. It actually opens our, our channels of our hearts and our minds so that joy and peace can actually be a, an experience in our life regardless of what our circumstances are. You see, as long as we're holding on to unrealistic expectations, we are blocking. you got to hear this, some of you, because some of you have been Christ followers for years and decades, and you can't figure out why you don't have this peace that the Bible talks about or this joy that the Bible talks about or this ever-increasing faith that the Bible talks about, and you can't figure out why it's not happening with you, well, it's because it's blocked by unrealistic expectations. And until you let them go and exchange them for realistic expectations, that's where you'll stay. But realistic expectations cause your trust in Christ to grow. Open yourself to experience His peace that is independent of circumstance, His joy that is a product of being who you were meant to be and doing what you were meant to do, and an ever-increasing trust, as I said at the beginning. So let's look at a couple of verses that, that substantiate this. Here's one from Jesus himself. This, this was the last night he was with his disciples. After being with them for three and a half years, and he's tried to prepare them for the fact that within hours he was going to go to the cross and die, but then rise from the grave. He's tried repeatedly to prepare them for this. They, they are in denial. They don't want to accept it. They've had such a great experience of Jesus. They don't want to let him go. But now he's giving them last words. He's trying to prepare their expectations for what their life as his followers is going to be like, what's normative. He says, and everything I've taught you is so that the peace, which is where? 
in me. Mind you, Jesus knows he's about to go to the cross. He knows he's about to be humiliated. He knows he's going to have the whiskers ripped from his face. He knows he's going to be spit on. He knows he's going to have people standing at the foot of the very cross mocking him, saying, oh, if you're the Messiah, why don't you come down from the cross? He knows that the puny creatures that he himself causes to live and breathe, whose hearts he could stop in an instant, he knows what they are going to do to him, and he says he has peace. And he knows what he's facing. You've got to think it through. Because that's saying that our circumstances do not dictate our peace or lack thereof. Or it doesn't have to. He says, it's so that this peace which is in me will be where? In you. So it's possible for us to have peace in any and every circumstance. And will give you great confidence as you rest in who? Me. It goes on. For in this, un- now he's setting their expectations. He's really getting clear about their ex- what they should expect. For in this unbelieving world, you will experience what? Trouble. And what else? Sorrows. These are not pleasant. Jesus is just saying, let's be real. This is what you're going to experience. In a world where there's sickness, sin, sorrow, pain, and death, a world that is not doing the will of God universally by every single person, these things are inevitabilities. You are going to. You can't escape. I don't care how rich you are, how beautiful, how powerful, how talented, we cannot escape trouble and sorrows. And even the loyal followers of Jesus must expect it. But you must be what? Courageous. For I have conquered the world. You see, this world is on a a short timetable, Jesus says. It says he's going to bring that kingdom that our hearts truly desire, where there's no more sickness, sorrow, pain, death, where everybody's loved all the time, where everybody feels safe and secure all the time. Nobody fears again. Nobody's lonely again. It's that place we sense. We know it's there, but we tend to push it out of our minds because it seems so impossible now, and it is indeed impossible now. So Jesus says, you want realistic expectations in this life, in this world, you who are my followers? Gear yourself up for some troubles and some sorrows. He's pretty honest. Now, I came across an article by a guy named Steve Baum, and he actually it's a, wrote a book. The book is called uh, Op- Open the Sky, I believe, uh, or Break Open the Sky, or Break, yeah, Break Open the Sky. And he has an interesting quote in it, and I'll tell you what's behind this in just a moment. He says, despite our near-phobic fear of what? Failure. The facts suggest that it's actually a common almost universal experience. I just want to ask you, how many of you have ever failed in anything before? Can I see your hands? All right, now I'm going to ask you a harder question. This is much harder. How many have ever failed at something that you desperately, with all your heart, you wanted to succeed at? Can I see your hands? Yeah, me too. So, failure, he says, is normative, and we should expect failure. Here's some of the supporting material that comes from his book. Let me just quickly read you some of these things. He says, 75% of venture capital-backed startups fail. That's three quarters, fail. 95% do not meet the initial expectations. 40% of CEOs don't last 18 months. 70 to 90% of mergers and acquisitions fail to add shareholder value. 70 to 90%. 81% of new hires don't work out. That was an eye-opener. 99% of new patents never earn a penny. 99%. 95% of new products introduced in a given year fail, never succeed. 
68% of information technology projects fail to meet their goals. 88%, this is not a surprise, 88% of New Year's resolutions end in failure. And 100% of all human bodies fail <laughs> sooner or later. <laughs> so trouble, sorrow, failure shouldn't frighten us. If we expect it, it will not deter you from doing whatever the will of God is with boldness and with confidence. It won't cause you to shrink back. Far from it, it'll cause you to move forward fearlessly, boldly, with realistic expectations, inner preparation, so that you can effectively live through whatever needs to be lived through so that the will of God is accomplished, whatever that unique will may be for your life. Listen to this verse from 1 Peter that just reinforces what Jesus had said. Peter is an old man now when he's writing this. He says, beloved friends, if life gets what? Extremely difficult. Some of us in here, life is extremely difficult right now. If life gets extremely difficult with many tests, and that word test is parasmos in Greek, it could be tests, trials, either one. Don't be what? Don't be bewildered. Don't be surprised. Don't be confused by it. As though something strange were overwhelming you it goes on for you know or you're supposed to know that your believing brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing the the what the same kinds of troubles you endure we, we, we tend to feel like when we have our problems the ones that really hurt us the ones that really get to us that it's unique nobody else knows nobody else can understand but it's not true it's not true the world is full of it it goes on Here's a, con a confidence building word. It says, and then after your brief suffering, now brief means, you know, who, whatever time it means, we don't know. It might be your whole life. After your brief suffering, the God of all loving grace who has called you to share in his eternal glory in Christ will personally and powerfully restore you and make you stronger than what? Stronger than ever. This is what David said. David says, yeah, I got in trouble, but I called on the Lord and he rescued me. I had fears, but I called on him. I cried out to him and he took away my fears. I had a broken heart, but God was near me. I didn't feel he was near me. I felt all alone, but he, I found out that he was. David just kept repeating, he'll rescue you, brothers and sisters in Christ. He's with you. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you, but he will not deceive you to think that this life is going to be especially trouble-free no matter how faithful and loyal we are. He's using this time. He's allowing suffering and evil for a little while so that he can abolish it forever. So, in closing, there's a condition that I made up. Uh, I think this is a condition I've observed for probably 40 years or more amongst people, but here's what it's called. Sim. I'm just curious, anybody ever heard of it before? Probably not since I made it up. <laughs> To introduce sim, since you don't know what sim is as a condition, I'll introduce something that you do know about. How many have ever seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life? Can I see your hands? And it's right around this time of year. It shows constantly. Let me ask it the other way. How many have never seen It's a Wonderful Life? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Okay, i got to get past the lights. You, 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 you got it. You got to watch it. It's one of the greatest movies ever made. I'm a movie guy, too. I mean, it's, it's, it's just remarkable. It's so beautiful. It's powerful. You just, you just got to get it. You got to rent it and watch it. All right. 
Well, if you remember, you that did watch it, you remember the deal? George Bailey is this young guy. He has expectations of traveling all over the world and building great bridges and great skyscrapers and airfields. And, but he's stuck in little Bedford Falls with his family. His dad owns this little savings and loan. It's the only honest place in town that allows people to have decent housing. There's this old rich guy. He's terrible. He's evil. His name is Potter. Potter controls everything, and he wants to control the little savings and loan, too. But George Bailey's dad stands in the way, and then George Bailey's just waiting, counting the days till he can go off to college and then take off on his architectural tour of the world. That, that's what his expectations were. And then all of a sudden, his dad dies, and he has a choice to make. Either he takes over the little teeny savings and loan and gets stuck in Bedford Falls, or he bails and just lets Potter, this greedy, wicked old man, take over and deprive people of decent housing. He can't do it. George is a good guy. You watch the movie, he's... I cry when I watch the movie, too, and I cry when I talk about it, and I cry when I even think about it. It's a beautiful movie, and George is a beautiful man. His life goes on, and the years crank and come and go. People around him go away. They become successful. They, they have all kinds of ventures. He doesn't. He's stuck there, but he's provided multitudes of decent housing, affordable decent housing for the people in Little Bedford Falls. And then one day, it's Christmas Eve, and his uncle Billy has to take an $8,000 deposit to deposit it in the bank. The bank examiner is due to come that day. Don't know why he came on Christmas Eve. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Nevertheless, well, Uncle Billy misplaces the $8,000, and Potter, the, the evil guy, sees the $8,000. He takes it, hides it, takes it to himself. And Uncle Billy is in a panic, and he goes, and he tells George, he says, George, George, I, I've lost the money. I've lost the money. And George is like, what? Because he knows the examiner's coming, and, and this is the end of the business, and maybe the end of his life, the end of his, his family. He's got four children now. He's married. He, he has to care for them as well as the business. So he finally, all through the movie, George is the sweetest, kindest, most unselfish man. It's a Christ-like kind of a person that you'll ever meet. And then he blows up, man. He becomes so angry, so foul, so nasty. He rips into Uncle Billy. I'm not going to be the one going to jail. You'll go to jail. And he goes home to his family. And here's his family, his four little kids and his wife. They're decorating, preparing for Christmas. They're all happy. Daddy, daddy, daddy. Oh, I don't want to talk to any of you. You know, he's mean. He gets so mean with his kids that at one point he says to his wife, he says, what in the world do we have all these kids for? I mean, it was ruthless, man. It's like, whoa, who are you, George? Well, George finally has to go to Potter and beg for $8,000, and Potter mocks him, and he says, he says, you know what, all you got for collateral is you got this little insurance policy, $15,000 life insurance. He says, you know what, George, you're better off dead. You're worth more dead than alive. And George has hit the end, man. He's beaten, he's discouraged, he's distressed, and he decides, yes, he's going to end his life. And he sets out to go kill himself. He ends up wrecking his car into a tree just before the bridge that he's going to jump off. He gets right, I got there the same place last message too. He, uh, he gets right ready to, to, to jump off the bridge, but what he doesn't know is that his children and his wife are praying for him. When he leaves the house after that foul uh, display that he gave to all of them, they pull together and say, Daddy's in trouble. Daddy's in trouble. Let's, let's pray for Daddy. So he's ready to kill himself, and his family's praying for him. And um, heaven hears. And in this case, they send a rather comedic, entertaining angel named Clarence. And Clarence tries to stop George. 
George does jump in the water and Clarence jumps in and then George saves him thinking that he's just some other fool drowning. And then George in anger, he says, you know, it would just be better if I were never born, never born at all. My whole life is just a mess. And Clarence looks to heaven and he says, what do you think? He says, okay. And he says, George, you got it. Your prayer's been answered. You were never born. And the rest of the movie, George gets to see what the world, what the world would have been like without him ever being born. And he just sees tragedy after tragedy. Instead of beautiful Bedford Falls, it's Pottersville. And it's this horrible, decadent place with bars and strip joints on every corner. And he sees his mother. She's this mean-spirited old boarding house woman who doesn't even want to talk to him or acknowledge him because she doesn't know him. He was never born. His brother dies because George wasn't there to save him when he fell into an icy creek early in his life. I mean, he just sees this multiple things that because he wasn't there... And it finally comes, finally comes to his senses. And he realizes he actually had, he had a really wonderful life. Really wonderful life. He prays. Clarence restores his identity. And he goes racing home. And, and the rest of the movie is just, just so touching and so beautiful. You've you got to see it to appreciate it. Here's my point. George had unrealistic expectations, and when they weren't fulfilled, he internalized them, and he became more and more bitter. He was nice on the outside, but he was just churning inside, feeling that he had been cheated, he had been deprived, he was supposed to have more, his life was supposed to be better, it was supposed to be different, and he was miserable. Let me go back to that term, that condition that I mentioned to you. SIM stands for self-inflicted misery. Please leave that up there for a moment I'm not a prophet I can't see into your hearts I just know people I know me I know life and some of us in here the story of our life now is this we have sin self inflicted misery if God were to look at our life he would say son daughter you actually have a wonderful life your expectations are just not realistic. Maybe you feel like some of your relationships are unbearable to you. They're not what you expect. They're not what you want. In fact, you, you're bitter and angry. Maybe it's a career thing. Maybe it's a very personal thing. Maybe it's physical and you just feel you've been cheated somehow. Your, your expectations, whatever they were, they're not going to be fulfilled. They're not. And maybe you're miserable, but it's self-inflicted because your expectations were never realistic. Never. In this life, says Jesus, you're going to have trouble and sorrow. Peter says, don't think it a strange thing when you have all kinds of trials and troubles and so forth. He said, it's just normative. Everybody else has got their share too. Never envy another human being, folks. Trust me on this one. Never envy another human being because if you're allowed to get close enough to them, you're going to find they've got just as many struggles. They're just different than yours, but they're there. So could it be that if you were willing today to say, before God, I am changing my mind, and I am going to dump every unrealistic expectation that I have. And I'm going to 
take the expectations that God gives me in his word and I'm going to embrace them, internalize them, align my expectations to them and I will never again allow myself to expect anything that God hasn't promised me in this life. Now he promises you plenty in eternity but not in this life. This is meant to be a developmental journey where we become who we were meant to become and do what we were meant to do. Some of you could instantly leave your misery behind today. Don't fight for your misery anymore. Don't blame the world. Don't blame God. Don't blame another human being. If you would be willing to do that, some of you could leave here today with what Jesus said, his peace that was in him on crucifixion night could be your peace. And this thing called joy could start to have a chance to rise up in you. And you would be a carrier of that peace and that joy to everybody you interact with. Let's be honest just for a moment. Are you suffering from self-inflicted misery because your expectations are just unrealistic? Let's pray. Lord, it's in your love that you brought us here today to speak to us when our hearts are tender and our, and our vision is clear help us to follow through and embrace expectations that you tell us we can count on in this life and the certainty of what we can expect in the life to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.